At the end of December, as the, year, the world slowed down a little bit, sort of, I decided that 2024 was going to be a good year. That was my resolution. By hook or by crook, I decided I was going to ensure joy and goodness in the coming year. After the trauma of this past fall, I was resolute, Kinahara, that I could will into existence a better future and a world in which I want to live. Four weeks into the secular year, I'm still committed to the project. Well, let's face it, this is not easy. Especially as the war in Gaza continues, as does the war in Ukraine, not to mention a primary season, which has already brought up so much agita. And we can only imagine what November will bring. That wasn't exactly a laugh line, but <laughs> I feel it too. There are so many reasons why we shouldn't just assume that 2024 will be a happy time for us. Many of those reasons have been creeping up for a long time now. A warming planet, the decline of democracy, social ties fraying, and the slow burn of so many other discontents. And yet, it's Shabbat Shirah, when we read that iconic bit of Exodus to which we turn so frequently. The Israelites standing on parted shores, braced for their freedom, singing of their redemption. This week, we read that song, the poetry of people who had been freed after centuries of enslavement. Who is like you among the gods that are worshipped? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, making wonders? Reading these words against a backdrop that sometimes feels less than liberatory, the text may be more of an aspiration praising awesomeness when there is so much awfulness all around us. But still we are commanded to do so. Praying these words is a kind of cognitive behavioral technique for asserting that the world can be good, even if we don't feel like it is. That freedom is possible for all peoples and for us. That no matter how bad things feel, there's plenty for which we can shout aloud songs of gratitude and plenty more goodness that we can enact or insist upon in our futures. If we're being honest, despite our current sense of dread and anxiety, surely we know that we are not the first generation of Jews to feel frightened by the state of the world. And both our prayers and our weekly Torah readings are designed to foster in us a sense of resilience which includes celebrating a world redeemed even if we know it is not yet. We are traditionally required to speak of our freedom multiple times a day. I think many of us know that you're supposed to say the Shema at least twice a day, which of course also includes a paragraph about being freed from Egypt. And the Midrash Halakha goes even further to say that if you say the Shema, you are actually required to also mention in your prayers the splitting of the sea. As if to say that without the splitting of the sea, there would be no reason to say the Shema. Now usually when we pray Micha Mocha, we think of it as a corollary to the Shema, 
But maybe we actually have that in reverse. The Shema, as we all know, is the watchword of our faith. The reason we used to rise when we said it was that it was and is the statement of believing in one God. The Spat Emet, a Hasidic sage, explains that the reason why we therefore must conclude the Shema by praying Micha is that the Exodus was the moment when our ancestors came to believe in that God of whom the Shema speaks. That without the act of standing on the shores, without the whole drama of becoming free after centuries of enslavement, the people might not actually have believed in that invisible God. We pray Michamocha and we remember the Exodus as a reminder that these things did happen for our ancestors. That indeed there were times when they felt free, after long periods when they were not. Our belief in God and our choice to participate in the goodness of living by way of prayer is, I would say, an act of resistance against the trauma and ennui of a world that is so painful. It is a choice to believe that another world is possible. Believing in newness or in the possibility of positive change is tough work. And for our mythic ancestors, it was just as hard to believe in goodness while they were on the precipice of a new world as it was while they were enslaved. There at the seashore, as they were so close to freedom that they could nearly touch it, we read in this week's Torah portion, They were very afraid, and they cried out to God. And they said to Moses, Was it for lack of graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? That's a direct translation. <clears throat> you love when the translation just sounds like it's a bunch of New York Jews. <laughs> What have you done to us? What have you done? God is so proud right now that God is so humorous. Because God, of course, wrote the Torah. What have you done to us by taking us out of Egypt? At which point Moses replies, Al tira'u, do not fear. Hit yatsvu or u et yeshuet. Yeshuat Adonai, stand yourselves up and witness the deliverance of God. This is, of course, easier said than done. But as Moses addresses the people, he says, Hit Yatsvu, stand yourselves up. The Tour, the 14th century commentator, reads this to mean that Moses is saying, Present yourselves in an upright posture, exuding confidence and do not appear to be afraid. Fake it till you make it, he tells them. And after 400 years of knowing nothing but bondage, faking it may all have been all they could manage. As we know, once the Israelites are past that moment, they still have decades to go before getting to their destination. And even then, it's only their kids that get there. But for a moment, when they realize they're on the right track, they dance. And the women dancing with their timbrels followed Miriam as she sang her song. Keep going. I'll that was really all I was going for. But oh, okay. You're doing a good job. 
We love it. We love that song, and we love Debbie. <clears throat> we love it. An ancient midrash known as the Mechilta asks an important question about those words, which is simply, where did they get timbrels? When the people hurry out of Egypt, they don't even have time to let their bread rise, and somehow, somehow they manage to bring timbrels with them. It's kind of curious. But the Midrash answers. A handful of righteous people remained confident, even as they were enslaved, that their liberation would one day come. And so they constructed timbrels and flutes. When they languished under oppression, unsure if there was any miracle coming their way, a few hopeful people had the chutzpah to build instruments just in case. They acted as if their liberation was a certainty, and so it was. I taught this text over the course of Rosh Hashanah with Brooklyn Jews. And boy, it's been harder since then to act as if the world is getting any better. I am not here to fool you into thinking that everything will be just fine. But I am suggesting that maybe we've already been fooled by our echo chambers and by our worst insecurities. And I want to encourage us all to insist on something better, to believe that even when we are most pessimistic about the state of the world or about our future in it, that there will be one day something good to celebrate again, to believe as well that though this time feels bleak, the seeds are being sown all around us for something better. I have no idea what the rest of 2024 will bring. And at times, it certainly feels like there is a sea standing in the way of all the things we want to happen. But perhaps the sea won't be as deep as we think, or maybe we'll even be surprised by some miracle. At the very least, as we strive to locate ourselves and our wishes amidst ongoing trauma, we should consider making our own timbrels and flutes anticipating a day when we will dance. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.